All right, everyone, what's going on, my friends? Welcome back to Titus Talks. Today, I get to have a great conversation with a colleague of mine, Andrew Hessel. Um, we're going to talk about some cool stuff around the work that he's done. Um, again, life, careers, biotech, all that fun jazz. Um, but before we do, I want to remind everyone, since you're listening to this as a podcast, you can go to your favorite podcast, Apple, uh, Spotify, Google, what have you. You got to leave a five-star review. Uh, you got to give us a comment, tell us what you like uh, so we can do more of that. And then if you want to see the lovely mugs behind the voices, go to YouTube. Um, and so you can find both of those at alexandertitus.com slash podcast, alexandertitus.com slash YouTube. And then most importantly, because I know everyone's really strapped for time right now and you know running around between meetings, um, to be efficient, I'll send you a newsletter if you want. So you go to alexandertitus.com slash newsletter, sign up, send all this stuff to you right away. Um, but enough about the boring stuff. Uh, Andrew, it's good to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for, uh, for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So for everyone's context, Andrew and I met in the last year or so, um, because we're both colleagues in the, in the biotech and synthetic biology industry. Um, we've had a lot of great conversations and so I wanted to bring some of those here. I want to kick it off by saying, Andrew, can you just, uh, tell us a story? And I, I have to say, I love that. Just across the board, tell a story. And I had to think about that, but I, I thought I would choose a contemporary story. Um, one, uh, one of the most powerful experiences I've had recently, and which inspired me to actually go and try and put together a meeting, um, was uh, a friend of mine has a missile silo in upstate New York. It's an Atlas F missile silo. Oh, and And... Like, I've had some great experiences in life, including... Like, how many can, people can say my friend owns a missile silo? I know, I, but, but uh, let's just say it was a very powerful attractor for me. I had been out in New York uh, doing the advance work. I moved to New York in September. So I had my, my two-year-old son with me for a month. Nice. And, and we were just running around having a great time. So we go up to this missile silo in the Adirondacks. And... Um, and it was it was remarkable because I only have three rules with children. One is don't kill them. Uh, two is one. feed them sometimes. Uh, tie together. And and put them to sleep eventually. So uh, let's just say I'm a little loose on timing. But but I got up to the missile silo, and like this is a pretty impressive facility. The Atlas F was designed to withstand a a close range nuclear blast and then fire an ICBM uh, nuclear tip in retaliation. So, so it's a pretty hardened facility. Um, it's not child friendly. And so, <laughs> the, so just getting into the facility, I am going, oh my God, I'm going to break rule number one <laughs> if I'm not careful. Like the entire control center in this facility, two stories, is, is on springs and it's designed to move. So there's a gap between the floors and the walls that he could fall 30 feet. Anyway, yeah. uh, let alone the main firing tube, which is 200 feet deep. Like the main silo is 200 feet deep. You could put the Statue of Liberty in it. Um, oh, and let's just say there's not a lot of safety railings. Right. <laughs> uh, but here's the thing that really, um, it was one of the most, being there was one of the most profound experiences I'd had in recent memory because um, uh, you get this sense that this is what America was investing in to protect the nation and its citizens in the 1960s. 
And right. it is science and engineering based. It took engine, the Army Corps of Engineers to build this facility. It took amazing engineering and aerospace and scientific research to build an ICBM and the, and the guidance systems, etc. And then, of course, the top nuclear physicists and engineers to go and build uh, a hydrogen bomb that sits on top of it and to put it all together in a working system. And the, the way I described it was it reeks of superpower. And... <laughs> And, and, it, it, and then I wanted to map that on what I was seeing in synthetic biology, in particular virology, because there I'm just not seeing the level of investment in national security and, and, in, and in the security of people. And, and I really wanted to, you know, infect people with the idea that we can have, you know, Atlas F uh, um, biosecurity. Let's put it that way. So that's my little story. Well, I mean, and you're right, that is very contemporary because right now we're suffering through SARS coronavirus 2, um, which to your point, we're struggling with because we don't yet have the capabilities to to come to deal with it, to fight it, to respond. So well, that's not surprising given it's been a hundred years since kind of the last, you know, pandemic of this type. And and two, it's it's an alien. Like viruses are literally alien creatures to most people. Yeah. But to be fair, it's also been 80 years since the last nuclear blast. So um, we still maintain preparation for some major catastrophic events and not others. Um, but that's that's a digression because I you are a virus guy. Um, you study viruses. You're an expert in viruses. You run companies in that. Can you talk to us about like why viruses? What is it so fascinating? Well, I, I was I became fascinated just with microbes when I was in when I was in my undergraduate. Um, like I, I did some people went into a medicine track when they did their bio, biology program. I did a cellular molecular track because I, I want to understand the core machinery of, of life. Um, and and really get into the guts of things. And and so you, you get exposed to viruses very quickly in, the, in that path. Virology was absolutely my favorite subject, in part because of the teacher that I had. Um, it's always but, a good teacher. Yeah. But when I, when I shifted and started doing some work in the lab, I realized uh, viruses are just incredibly cool. Um, they're, they're relatively easy to propagate. You, they, they move code around very quickly. Um, they, we use them as powerful research tools, as vectors, as diagnostics, etc. And so I really became, I really fell in love with the virus when I was, when I was culturing them. But then I started to get into synthetic biology and there I wanted to write genetic code some people write genetic code to make modifications to a genome. I wanted to write the complete genome. I wanted full bit level control over the genome. And, and yeah. you have to basically start with the virus because it has the smallest genome. So for me, the tipping point was in 2002 when Eckerd Wimmer, um, a scientist that was actually working with the U.S. military, synthesized polio virus. The, and, and essentially booted up the first synthetic genome. Um, uh, that was really like, I was there, I, I was hooked. So you run, it seems like multiple companies at, at this point. Uh, what are, how is that, how do those work together? How does GP Wright um, and your synthetic virus company, how do those work together or relate together? 
Well, the relation is uh, both organizations are focused on writing genomes from scratch. The, I have a company called Humane Genomics, uh, which, is, which is writing a one virus type at the moment and building it from scratch. And we're tuning it to be um, a, what's called an oncolytic virus, a cancer fighting virus. So we're learning how to, we're reprogramming it so it can kill cancer cells. And moreover, we can target the, the virus to specific cancer cells better and better. And there, the whole thing is just being able to iterate, design, build, test, and, and learn from the testing that you're doing and, and cycling that, that whole process faster and faster. And we've got that virus worked down now to, to about a week for that whole oh, wow. process um, at, at very low cost. So now we're able to really learn quickly. On the far end of the scale, I'm, I have the privilege of being a co-founder and, and current chairman of, of something called the Genome Project Right. And it is essentially the flip side of the coin to the Human Genome Project. Uh, the Human Genome Project was, was about reading the human genome for the first time, thus nucleating the technology and ethics and, and processes and capabilities around reading DNA. Um, the whole idea with the Genome Project, right, is to write a human genome, not, not to make babies, just to run in cell culture. But again, work, look at, at the ethics, the processes, the, the tooling, where the bottlenecks are. And it quickly grew into a global community of people that are just as interested as I am uh, and a lot more capable in many respects in, in writing uh, genomes from scratch. So it's a young organization brilliant people involved, still growing and evolving. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Um, but more and more, it's, it's creating a vacuum, essentially, that's pulling in all of these other groups um, interested in and individuals interested in writing genomes uh, yeah. for what for a for a large, you know, for a growing variety of applications. Right. Well, I mean, and that's how we were connected originally, because um, in my previous role at the Department of Defense, uh, leading biotech, um, I was invited to come to your meeting. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't make that meeting, but uh, my team went up and it was, it's impressive. I mean, Matt, if, I mean, you know this, but to everyone else listening, the genome, the human genome project in the 90s revolutionized and kicked off a field of genomic medicine and how we understand uh, kind of disease susceptibility and progression and the ability to f now fight those kind of things. You know, to your point, you're writing uh, synthetic viruses to fight cancer, um, which is pretty cool. It's so, also, it's all sorry to interrupt, but this is actually the 20th anniversary of the draft genome being released in, in, in 2000. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a 2020 is an interesting year for, for viruses and biology across the board, but yeah. you're, so you're a, a phenomenal technical leader in your field. Um, do you have a PhD in all of this stuff? I don't. I was pursuing, um, so actually the, the story is a little deeper. I was working in Canada on my, on my PhD um, and, and I quickly realized uh, we just weren't at the forefront. Um, the, at the time we were still reading and analyzing genomes mostly, but I was teaching most of my professors and so I realized I, I was going to have to look abroad. So um, I was um, I uh, the the door opened up that I would end up going to the to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, 
they were really some of the leaders uh, at the time in, in, in sequencing and analysis. So that was slotted. I was going to, so I was wrapping up a master's program uh, in Canada and preparing to transfer to a PhD program in, at Urbana. And um, uh, through a, a series of circumstances, I ended up getting recruited and hired by Amgen, uh, at the time, the largest biopharmaceutical company. And so one day I was a grad student preparing to continue my PhD. Um, the next day I was reporting to a vice president of the largest pharma company in the world and basically helping uh, uh, their entire um, research playhouse in Toronto uh, succeed. So it was really, um, it was, it's just been a, uh, my education has never stopped. Let's put it yeah. that and that, that's exactly, that's a point that I've tried to make lots of times because a lot of people think that you have to have a PhD in, this, in the biotech industry. They're phenomenal tools uh, for a certain set of jobs, but you're a great example of the PhD does not make the technical expertise nor the hunger to keep learning. It's a reflection of that, but you can still get that in a lot of different ways. And you've built entire institutions around uh, the leading technology thinking in this area. Um, which is pretty cool. It, there's uh, it, there's good and bad sides to it. Um, uh, you're less constrained without a PhD. You, like I was never socialized properly in the in the academic culture, nor in the in in the industry PhD culture. So uh, I always describe myself as a bridge, um, right. and I know enough about enough industries that I can see patterns and communicate at a reasonable level with a lot of different. Um, with a lot of different personalities and uh, with different backgrounds, um, which which has been a strength. On on the downside, there's a lot of groups where you walk in if you don't have a doctor in front of your name, they just don't take you seriously. Yeah, and that's the that's what I'm trying to help socialize the idea that that's not necessarily the right way to go. I mean, I think you should be taken seriously, but for example. I have a doctor in front of my name, but it doesn't have anything to do with synthetic biology. But no one really cares as long as there's a doctor there. Um, they just assume you're, you know, it's like the Hollywood scientist where you can be Bruce Banner. He's an expert in gamma radiation physics, human physiology, and aerospace design. Um, <laughs> you know, the Hulk is not good at all of those things. A doctorate doesn't make you a doctorate in all science. Um, and that's a, you know, again, it's a great tool, but at the same time, the perception, I think, exceeds uh, the utility of the tool. Sometimes it's true, but but the thing that I like to point out is the real the real superpower is being able to bring people to the table and getting them to work together. Because uh, whether you're a doctor running your lab or or uh, doing running an industry group, you have to get people to work together if you're going to multiply your efforts and to synergize and. So there's, there's very few doctorates that teach you how to do that, you know, to effectively gather and motivate and, 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 and finance groups of people to, you know, to move forward. And if you can figure that out, uh, you can hire all the PhDs you like. <laughs> yeah. And again, I have, I have a PhD and so I have, I think that was a wonderful experience and I have nothing against them. I'm just trying to help people understand exactly what you're saying. It's not just the credential. It's, those kind of things. It's bringing people together. Um, and, and the curiosity and, and yeah, this, the organization. And it's also, you know, there's, yeah, like it, it's, it's really, um, 
it, it, it's really awesome to keep the, your your mind open and not have it constrained. So if, if the PhD is going to be you know limiting, and, and this is another hassle. The PhD, at least in North America, has turned into a longer and longer program. Yeah. Whereas whereas in the UK, it's still very fast. You're in school early. Your PhDs are three years. Then get out and keep growing. Whereas here, it's stretching into you know six years, seven years sometimes. Yeah, I think the average across all biomedical PhDs is 5.5, which is, yeah, that's a lot I mean, fun. in the startup world, you could start and exit a company in that amount of time sometimes. <laughs> Maybe not in biotech, but in other ones. Um, well, you could in biotech, I guess. But uh, so with that, one of the other things, the very open-ended question I'd love to ask you for everyone is, what advice do you have for people? And again, that's very open-ended. It doesn't have to be about science, but whatever you think. Uh, I'll, 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 you know, study viruses. <laughs> There's a new <laughs> app store. Um, uh, like, no, uh, well, that uh, seriously, that is part of the advice I give to people. Um, uh, viruses are probably the most powerful tool emerging in life science. Like there's there's some amazing areas to go and work in, whether it's enzyme design, metabolic pathway engineering. But but if you want to build organisms, start with viruses. And we're, I believe it turns into the app store of biology um, because viruses are essentially USB sticks. They just load programs into cells, but there's no standardized USB port in cells. So they come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. So you know, keep your eye on viruses and don't be afraid of them. But, but really, in more general advice, um, uh, I think I, I think what I like to tell people is is find your passion. Like it, it's even in even in most of the academic pathway to bioscience, you you start to learn general uh, stuff. You know, pick up a textbook. You you read. This is my Bible here. You know the molecular biology of the cell. If you can read this cover to cover, it's it's basically your undergraduate and master's work. Um, it's great. But but your real the the real sense of what you're going to get and go and do every day, you have to find what motivates you. And and uh, not a lot of people do that. Like even in even in life science, you tend to just work with a principal investigator. Um, that's kind of your doorway into this world. And, and usually you have a small sub project that they're interested in. If you're really lucky, if you get to design your own experiment. Um, but, but you may be moving further and further away from your core of what you're really interested in doing. And I love it when people find their, their, the reason for their life early and, and, and pursue it with tenacity. Um, and sometimes that, you know, takes uh, uh, some time and just self-reflection. Um, sometimes you're born with it. Uh, it's different for everybody. But I think when you can find that, even if it's not uh, a grandiose change the world thing, but as long as you can get to the stuff that makes you truly happy and fulfilled and you can find a way to make it economic, that's amazing. Um, and you can do this really early. Uh, so many people often have dreams of what they want to be when they're young and then they get, uh, you know, off track as they get a little older, um, you know, and kind of see the, just the everyday busyness and mechanics of the world, most of which is just not that interesting. Yeah. My problem is I want to be everything when I grow up. So I still haven't figured it out. Everything sounds interesting. Now I want to be a virologist. <laughs> it's not too late. 
Um, again, I think one of your core interests is how do you make this more accessible to people? Yeah. Um, uh, let's just say that I spend a lot of time working on that um, uh, because I uh, much of what I think about is mapped onto the world of computing because like there's very big differences between biology, which kind of does information processing with atoms, but, um, uh, and the world of computing, but both of them are probably at the same scale of affecting humanity. Uh, like one makes humanity, but, but the other one, let's face it, computing systems have become so embedded in our modern society that, um, that we and we've built everything. We know every person, every story, every patent, every license. Like we've got this incredible architecture that we've made and somehow make all work that is uh, giving us a lot of insight into the, the mechanisms that biology evolved. And, and now we're actually seeing those two worlds come together in a closer and closer intersection because electronics and biology turns out you can actually interface them right down at the nano scale, not just not just at the macro scale, living with our phones, right? So, so um, uh, I th I think we're going to see um, uh, some some pretty remarkable uh, new things happen because biology is now being as democ uh, starting to be um, uh, uh, accessible in the same way that early computing systems became accessible back in, you know, the, uh, in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's a great analogy. I mean, we went from the mainframe computers, um, down to the, you know, the powerful iPhones. And I think that same thing is happening, starting to happen, at least with biology right now, the mainframe computers are the, you know, big companies with tons of foundries, but eventually it'll be much more desktop sized. Yeah, well, the thing about biology is the manufacturing capacity is everywhere. Anything you see green behind me is a, is a manufacturing plant. Um, and it all runs on a universal programming language with a single, you know, with a single medium. And, and you know, I don't think people fully appreciate that, you know, we've had this incredible acceleration in sequencing technology over the last 20 years since, you know, again, this week, the draft genome being published, yeah. uh, you know, to make that first genome was took a, a, a global effort. Um, right. Today, getting a, a genome sequence with with better, you know, with better technology, um, uh, with full analysis um, and and done in a day rather than 10 years is is 300 bucks um, right. so, but, but what most people don't realize is the price uh, the price performance of reading dna will will likely equalize with the price performance of writing dna over the over the next decade or two with, wow. so if, if you can read a bacterial genome in an hour you know and get and analyze it with you know, with the tools that we have today, which is certainly doable uh, within, within a decade or two maximum, you'll be able to write it in, in that time period for about the same money. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, like you can cool. just start with that and then, and then, you know, build your models. Right. Well, I can't help but ask also uh, the, the virus guy, do you have any, so as it relates to coronavirus and SARS coronavirus too, 
Um, are there anything that is just outright, I guess, what is your, what perspectives do you have on kind of the common narrative? This is a very broad question, but people ask me all the time, what should I believe? What shouldn't I believe? When are we going back to work? When are we not? Or, or how long are we going to not? Um, is there anything that you would like that you just get kind of irritated that it's just a common misconception that would be really useful to help people understand? No, I know I'm I, catching I, you off guard. No, not really, because um, uh, we've. I think the entire world has been thinking virology. So the silver lining in 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 SARS-CoV-2 um, is that suddenly we're all getting an education in virology, epidemiology, immunology, vaccines, and and drug development. You know, like right. uh, as well as clinical management of of you know some of these uh, uh, of COVID. Um, uh, we're, we're, it's been a, a tremendous wake-up call, um, and, and it's revealed that we were unprepared. It's also an opportunity because this is a common enemy of humanity. It, it's, not, it's not, you know, black or white. It's not Republican, Democrat. It's not EU, North America. Like, it is truly an international, uh, it, it, it's an international call to action. Right. Um, and, and for me personally, it, it speaks that we need to build a global immune system. Uh, it looks like better global health. Um, I think it needs, uh, I, I think that we have to do, we have to do this now. There's, um, because a vaccine that isn't available everywhere is kind of a weapon, um, right? So as it dictates who can survive and who can't. And so I think this is a big wake up call, probably. Um, and it's an expensive and, and hard wake up call because uh, there's been a lot of disruption and suffering and death. And and I, I don't even know what the final tally will be in terms of dollars and economy. But right. this is this is unprecedented. Um, that being said, um, I think it's also a really powerful driver that we should be doing virological work um, in a in a much more transparent way and i think to do that we have to embrace synthetic virology because when i hear oh this was engineered uh in a lab in wuhan and got loose or maybe it was a gain of function study that they lost control over or it came out on a boot or or who knows like the fact that with synthetic virology you get the full digital trace log, who is doing every transaction or, or manipulation. You get the full evolutionary history and you get to build in uh, watermarks and signatures into the genome. So there's absolutely the only way you could produce and release uh, a, a designer weapon um, without it being without without signatures would be to basically build a whole new infrastructure. Right. Interesting. Well, I appreciate that. Um, that's not a perspective that I had thought about. Uh, that being said, uh, we don't know what's going to happen yet as we move forward because we're modeling it at a global level and you can't build a model for that. So we're learning what the best practices are by, by doing our best. Uh, and everyone's doing the same. So I think the next few years as we synthesize what's happened and what worked and what didn't um, and come together to think about how we create, you know, this global, you know, immune system, I think is, it's going to be a really interesting few years in life science. Well, I'm, uh, 
for for better and worse, excited to be in this field. Um, for better, because I'm excited for all the things you're talking about. For worse, because I feel helpless at times for not being able to do more. Um, but it's great. And Andrew, I really appreciate your time. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And please check out the Genome Project Write if you want to learn more about writing genomes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll uh, make sure that information's there. So a link to that, um, a link to uh, a couple of your really interesting singularity and TEDx talks as well, because uh, there's a lot more behind this that we could uh, talk and talk and talk about. So it's great. Um, and just to remind everyone, uh, boring stuff again, but really important. It's a podcast, so go check it out anywhere you need to. AlexanderTitus.com slash podcast or slash YouTube. Make sure you uh, subscribe and leave a review, five-star review, because this is an awesome conversation. Um, and or sign up or both sign up for the newsletter, alexandertitus.com slash newsletter. So thank you, everyone. And we'll talk to you next time.